Take a note. Repeat it a few times. And you have a cogent musical idea, a rhythmic motif, if not a melodic one. Or perhaps it is melodic. Melodies can, after all, repeat notes. Maybe what happens next will enlighten us. Now, that's a tune. But it's almost diffident, with that curious pause in the middle. And are those drum taps before it an integral part or merely an introduction? The answer seems clear enough at the moment. They're an introduction. The phrase really starts at the woodwind entry. That answering phrase seems to confirm a four-bar-by-four-bar structure, which would make the drum beats at the opening introductory. But what happens next? The drum tap idea is taken up by the strings, repeated in every bar, and we no longer know where the phrase begins or ends. And just to compound the difficulty, Beethoven employs all sorts of ways of confusing the accentuation. The violin's entry on an exotic note is one of them. D sharp, when we're in the key of D natural. It's called a tonic accent, if you really want to know, and the loudly emphatic response from the lower strings on a note which does belong to the key, an A, exaggerates the outlandish sound. So, in this very understated way, Beethoven is playing around with our perception of the phrasing. He's found a method, a new one, of creating and maintaining tension. The music floats forward the whole time, constantly raising and then redefining our expectations of when the main accent falls. Let's listen to the whole opening sentence again, uninterrupted. So, Beethoven has established the character of this music, which is subtlety itself. Long-breathed phrases floating over the accent, counterpointed by the opening drum tap. A striking idea, if you'll forgive the pun, the more so for being so unassuming. It's all very strange, remote even, hardly guaranteed to command the attention of an audience more used to the excitements of the traditional concerto. Time to shake them up a little. A new idea on the woodwind tries to raise the temperature. 
but itself almost seems to peter out into the oceanic unawareness of D major. seems more like the Beethoven of old. That fortissimo, the first we've heard, has rattled the cage a little, breaking the gentle forward movement for a while. It's enough to propel the violins in a new direction, and indeed, it seems, into a new key. We could be about to hear the contrasting second theme. It is a second theme, though it's so similar to the opening in style and mood that you'd hardly guess it. And what's more, that drum tap motif is still there. And it's there even when you don't think it is. Remember how the violins led up to that? particularly this last bar. As Beethoven himself makes clear, that's a decorated version of the drum tap. We actually observe the music returning to its basic motif, as if we're taking an X-ray looking at the skeleton beneath the skin. But listening more closely to the new melody, we notice that its opening rhythm... is the same as this little phrase from the first theme. It's a resemblance which is even more conspicuous as the new melody continues. the new theme repeats the simple rhythm four times. The first audience might easily have found the similarity of subjects hard to take. They would have been expecting dramatic contrasts, a thrilling orchestral introduction to the big moment when the soloist enters. It doesn't seem as though this concerto is following those rules at all. But contrast there is, of a milder kind. Beethoven now repeats his new theme in the minor adding a gentle triplet accompaniment which always runs in the opposite direction to the theme, generating a new pathos and driving the music to expand. The little introductory drum tap figure is still there, though, the brass joining the timps this time.
there's another offbeat pause like the one in the opening theme. The music seems to hang in the air and, as it did before, turns back on itself. For a moment, only the drum beats remain, uncertain of where to go next. Then the music heaves itself back into forward momentum. There's yet another of those suspended moments, mind you. Since the previous one, we've heard some pretty forthright statements, and even what sounded like a third theme: violins call and cellos and basses answer. This is the first of several elements that Beethoven's contemporaries found disconcerting. The verdict of the conoscenti is unanimous, reported one critic. They concede that it has some beauties, but maintain that the continuity is often completely fragmented. This time, the hold-up lasts not just for a beat or two, but for fully fifteen bars. The orchestra holds an expectant chord, a kind of red carpet laid out for the arrival of the soloist. But instead of making the most of its grand entrance by launching triumphantly into a big tune, the violin plays the same expectant chord, only broken up and decorated. It wanders around hesitantly, building the anticipation until the magical return of the first theme, when we can all stop holding our breath. <laughs> In a classical concerto, the orchestra has an opening section of its own, giving out the main themes, and when the soloist enters, the whole thing is repeated. That's where we've got to now. 
and were at the moment when, in the orchestral version, the second theme appeared. This time around, those decorated drum taps are still there. This, after all, is just violin speak for this. The triplet accompaniment from the orchestral opening reappears as well in the solo violin part, and you'll hear the moment when everything but the drum taps disappeared. Followed by the third theme, with cellos and basses answering the violins, it all boils up to a huge climax.
What do you think happens there? This is what we might expect. To herald the end of the opening section, but what we get is this. Sudden shift of key and what sounds like another repeat of the orchestral introduction. It's not quite the same, though. What we might expect to be the most important music in the whole piece, the first theme, is missing, and when the second idea returns, it's doubled in length. This is a piece of extraordinary daring on Beethoven's part. Not a word you would associate with music of this nature, perhaps. But bearing in mind how the prevailing rhythm of the second theme, simple as it is, is identical to part of the first theme, the potential for monotony is great, and wasn't missed at the premiere. The same critic I quoted just now suggested that the endless repetition of some commonplace passages might easily prove wearisome. Commonplace, wearisome. Wow! And we think contemporary music gets a bad press these days. In the 21st century, we're used to Beethoven and can enter into the spirit of his lofty idealism at will. But our friend the critic gives us some idea of how shocking this piece was in 1806. What Beethoven is aiming at here is a sustained and serene lyricism, a reduction in musical incident for its own sake, and the development instead of a broader architecture. This may not be heaven-storming as the Eroica Symphony was. But its scope is as ambitious. What a huge project to hang onto a small, sweet thing like a violin, and of course that's what confused everyone at the time. And here we are, waiting once more. The music held in suspension. The soloist enters almost exactly as he had done first time round, keeps us waiting again, and then at last, for the first time in over 150 bars, we hear the first theme. This time, it's approached in a remarkable passage, with the violin suspended high and the cellos creeping in dissonantly, a full fathom five octaves below. Music as spare as this had never been heard before. It's a mark of how characterful it is that after so much time, the first idea is so recognisable. And indeed, after so much time, Beethoven dwells on it, extending it, and then repeating its last five notes on the bassoons. Now. 
doubling the speed. In between each utterance, the orchestral strings gently brush in the drum tap rhythm from the opening, which itself doubles in speed. I've been thinking about that early review. Of the 550 bars of the first movement, some 150 invoke that drum-tap motif. Not bad for an introductory gesture. But how about the second theme, the one you always come away humming? What proportion of the first movement does that occupy? Well, it's exactly the same, 150. So between them, those two motifs have this expansive movement just about sewn up. No wonder some people found it wearisome. But Beethoven was creating something beyond the everyday, incident-packed reality. He was aiming at a deeper stillness of rhythm and of harmony. And here he's achieved it. Now a minor miracle occurs. Drum taps return, heralding the recapitulation and concluding repeat of the opening material. The hushed summons to revolution that it had been at the start, and the subversive way it's been lurking beneath the surface for just about the whole movement, now is revealed in all its power. In the process, the first theme is transformed, and the phrase structure thrown out of kilter once again. It's a real epiphany. Perhaps it isn't an introductory gesture after all. Perhaps it is really the beginning of the principal subject. The deceptively calm and lyrical, not forgetting commonplace and wearisome, first movement was underpinned by a structure of great simplicity and great strength. The slow second movement begins in the same unassuming style as did the first. The orchestral strings set the tone, muted and hushed.
By now, I'm sure you've penetrated the mystery of that slow pulse. But at first, it sounds as though it might begin on the first beat of the bar. One, two, three. But actually, it's one, two, three. Another example of Beethoven playing with our perception of the music, just like he did with the drum tap at the beginning of the first movement. There are the same curious pauses as we heard in the first movement here too, the most striking of which happens at that stunning shift to a strange chord. it. Ten bars of utter simplicity. Beethoven uses it for a series of variations, each of which is a jewel, and each with more florid decorations in the solo violin part. Here's the second of them. It features the bassoon, a suitably quiet-voiced instrument whose sound has already been a characteristic of this subdued concerto. Just as in the theme, and the first variation for that matter, Beethoven pauses on the exotic chord to give the soloist an opportunity for a little fantasy play.
That third variation is for the orchestra on its own, and when the soloist does return, it's with a new idea. Beethoven directs it to be played on the lowest strings possible for richness of tone. Once again, the rhythm and shape of the beginning of that melody. Isn't so far from what we heard in the first movement. Yet another thing for his contemporaries to complain about. In spite of the great contrasts between this movement and the previous one, Beethoven reminds us of what's gone before with great subtlety, ensuring that somewhere within us the overarching form of the whole piece is recognised. At the end of the movement, there are more surprises. come off and the exotic harmony we expect is sternly sidestepped. This music reminds me of the slow movement of Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, which was just around the corner, and as in that slow movement and that of the fifth concerto, the so-called Emperor, the finale segues. That soloist's trill initiates another cadenza which is supposed to link straight into it. Once again the soloist is asked to play on the bottom string and the accompaniment is cellos only. This tune is supposed to have been inspired by a bird. It's so characterful and unforgettable that it imposes its personality on the whole finale. But even here there are still those tentative pauses. Yet again, things aren't quite as simple as they seem. After that first statement, the tune repeats, rather boisterously I always feel, on full orchestra. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now, what do you make of that? After so much serene meditation, that's pretty galumphing stuff, isn't it? We're in another world entirely. Indeed, can we even at this point remember the refined atmosphere of the previous movement, let alone the poetry of the first? Perhaps not. But what about this? A distant cousin, perhaps, of... particularly after the metamorphosis it underwent later on in the first movement. Another sign that this rondo isn't as uncomplicated as it sounds. And what a long way that drum tap has travelled. Anyway, that galloping rhythm brings the horns in, tally-hoeing. They're clearly in pursuit of the soloist, who's taken refuge high in a tree. As in all rondos, the main theme keeps returning, so before very long we're back with the solo violin and the bird tune. But when the orchestral repeat happens, things seem to go slightly askew. Beethoven works a minor harmonic miracle, moving through a series of distantly related keys to loosen the hold of the home key. Here he is, leaving D major. And there's Beethoven back at D major again. But it has a completely different atmosphere about it this time. Instead of feeling like an arrival home, it now seems there's still a great deal of travelling to be done. Even the solo violin doesn't know quite what to do next, hovering around hesitantly. And there's yet another variant of the first movement's drum tap. It could be reduced to this. In the first movement, those repeated notes heralded a new theme, and that's exactly what happens here. Once again, the soloist is shadowed by the gently unassuming bassoon. It's almost a double concerto at times. We've had two themes, so this third one should constitute the middle section of the movement. Sure enough, the bird tune returns once more, followed by the hunters with their horns. 
Eventually, the hunting theme comes right to the fore, hammering away to prepare us for the soloist's final cadenza. Does that relate back to? Yes, of course. That drum tap has really stolen the show. After the cadenza, the orchestra returns with fragments of the main theme, in which even at this late stage, Beethoven seems to find something fresh. He explores a whole new area of feeling in the strange harmonic territory of A flat major, the most distant key possible from the home key of D. And this is how he gets there. And what about that high-lying phrase from the soloist? Does it remind you of anything? This, perhaps, from the slow movement. No doubt it's an unconscious reference, but in the way of creative things, no less intentional for that. Indeed, it quietly makes the point I entered on at the beginning of the finale, the distance this music has travelled since the first movement. That broad expanse was followed by a shorter movement, no less rarefied, which led on without a break into the rondo finale. So the last two movements can be felt to balance the first, and this tiny reference to the slow movement at this closing point brings them closer together again. The balance has been reinforced. So how far have we travelled from the first movement? Well, listen. If you reduce that to its most important elements, its skeleton, if you like, you get this. Not so far, after all, from the beginning of the whole piece. Groups of repeated Ds continue to dominate the texture for the rest of the movement, sometimes straight, as we've just heard, sometimes in the rondo hunting rhythm, for example in the trumpets. I'm not claiming that this is a novel architectural feature designed by Beethoven. It was unconscious, no doubt. And anyway, it can hardly fail to happen in a style so simply diatonic and rhythmically uncomplicated, 
Playing the tonic note on the main beats through a two- or four-bar phrase will give it to you. But it's there. And, just as a colour in a picture can hardly fail to relate that area of the canvas to a similarly coloured, distant feature in the painting, so here I have no doubt, and because I trust Beethoven's instincts, the primary rhythmic feature takes us back to the starting point. 